Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. It is a big, big day here because starting tomorrow, you are going to be able to listen to our program on satellite radio. After all this time, that day is finally here. Sirius, Channel 213, XM 201. Sirius 213, XM 201. So if you can't hear us on terrestrial radio or watch us on CBS Sports Network, you can listen to us on satellite Big, big news, which we are all pumped for. Meantime, the NFL scouting combine starts next week, which means draft analysis is heating up. And by heating up, I mean reaching peak stupidity. Also, a Super Bowl ring that may or may not have belonged to Tom Brady's family sold for nearly 350 gur. We'll get into what that means for TB12, The Hood, and Bob Kraft. Michigan men's basketball coach John Beeline came on the program and he was on the air when the news broke that Louisville had to vacate their national championship from 2013. You'll hear his reaction to the news. Daytona 500 champ Austin Dillon, the driver of the number three car, made it in after that life-changing win and I had a tremendous conversation with Houston Cougars basketball coach Kelvin Sampson who has them back in the national mix for the first time in decades. Big show. Fun show. Alvy, get after it. First, Mayfield is doing everything he can to distance himself from Manziel. But there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Like that Manziel comparison has come up in the past. It keeps coming up. And Mayfield wants to tamp it down. And his comments are pretty much exactly how you want to handle that comparison. So I think in that sense, you know, put aside what I said for a minute about him saying... I'm a good teammate. Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying that Johnny Manziel isn't a good teammate. Put that aside for a minute. I think that Mayfield's doing a really good job with how he's handling this. For instance, if he crushes Manziel, then that's a story from now until the draft. But if he ignores the comparisons altogether, they're just going to keep coming up. So instead, what he's doing is he's praising Manziel's talent while underlining his own work ethic. You know, I wasn't given the natural talent that Johnny had because he he's a talent, and there's a reason he got taken in the first round. <clears throat> amazing player. And so we're just, we're just not the same mentally, um, just wired differently. Right, wired differently, but there are some similarities in their gunslinger approach on the field. The fact that in college, both these guys can consistently take a nothing play and make it into something, make it into something that makes a highlight reel. And the fact that in College Station, Manziel had a similar aura and it factor to what Baker Mayfield has right now. And yes, they both had their share of controversy. But that's the thing. While Mayfield has been the subject of some controversy, the people around him are very quick to point out, unlike Manziel, his controversies have not hurt anybody else. The other thing Mayfield wants you to know is that he does get it. Quote, You get a bunch of grown men that work really hard, so it'll be different going from 18 to 22-year-olds to people that are feeding their families, their children. A lot of these guys make their money just based off a work ethic and never quitting. In other words, you can trust me to show up and work hard. You can trust me because I do know what's at stake, not only for me, but for my teammates. And that's smart. It's smart because that's another way of delineating yourself from Manziel, who never really seemed to understand anything about the NFL or what it takes to stick and thrive once you get there. So, where does that leave us with Baker Mayfield? Is he ready to come in and be a week one starter and lead an NFL team right out of the gate? I don't know. 
I don't know. But then again, I'm not sure how many of those guys there really are anyway. What I am prepared to say is I've seen enough of this guy to think that he's not Johnny Manziel. Now, that doesn't mean he'll be a success because so much of success in the NFL for quarterbacks is about landing in the right spot, being surrounded by the right people, the right coaches, the right system. But if it doesn't work out for Mayfield, it's not going to be because he's the next Johnny Manziel. Manziel just did not get it, and I'm not convinced that he even does right now after washing out completely. But Mayfield does. He knows what's at stake. He knows that not everybody is sold on him or his character or his size or even his pro prospects and his ability. I mean, this guy's without question one of the more polarizing guys in the draft. But for him, that's good because he has always run on that kind of fuel. The more you doubt him, the more you crack him, the harder he works. And that right there is the biggest difference between he and Manziel. Mayfield works. Manziel didn't at least not consistently. Mayfield gets it. Manziel didn't. Again, finally, I don't know if Mayfield is going to be a star or a guy ultimately holding a clipboard, but I guarantee he will not be out of the sport within two years the way Johnny Manziel has. So where do you come out? Me, I happen to love the guy. I love his playmaking ability. I love his swagger. He's done some dumb things, to be sure. But... I'm one of those guys. I love the way he plays the game. I love his fire. I love his passion. His size does not concern me as much. And the guy wins. He just wins. He's literally one of the best college quarterbacks I've ever seen. So I'm definitely pro Baker Mayfield. And my concern, yeah, I mean, if he doesn't make it, it's not going to be because he's the next Johnny Manziel. Let's go to Twitter quickly. At Aaron and AZ tweets. I'm Team Bake. Er. Sincerely, Johnny Idiot Face. Johnny Idiot Face. I'm not even rooting against Johnny Idiot Face. I like Johnny Idiot Face. I'm pulling for Manziel. It'd be the greatest comeback ever. I'm Team Idiot Face. I like both these guys for different reasons. But as aggravating as it must be to Baker Mayfield, he's got to keep his head and understand these comparisons are going to come up, obviously. And I think so far he's doing a pretty good job with it. John Beeline is my guest. John, it is so good to have you back on. How are you, John? Thanks, Jim. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Nice to have you on. So let me start with last night's win, or I should say Sunday's win, over number 8 Ohio State, 74-62. John, that's a game where Jordan Poole had 12 of his 50 in the first half. So how pleased were you with the way the freshman showed up on senior day? Yeah, you, you know, the freshman, you just never know what you're really going to get. I, very few know what you're going to get. And he's had some tremendous games uh, for us all, all year long. Uh, there's other games where he's, you know, a typical freshman trying to figure some things out. But, but the young man has some swag, and he's not afraid to shoot it. And uh, we love that part of it. So he just came in off the bench, and we, it, it really just uh, it, it, it was a catalyst for us in every way. And in the second half, hit a huge three. I uh, only had one in the second half, but it was a big one just to give us a little bit more separation. John Beeline joining us. And then, John, on top of that, you had Muhammad Ali Abdul Rahman. He had 17 against Ohio State, which was his seventh straight game in double digits. 
really critical to me because he's somebody who's had to be patient for a number of yeah. years. He was not the focus of your offense, but you said about a month ago you feel like or felt like he didn't have enough stuff for him. Yeah. What did you see that made you feel like you need to get him even more involved? Well, he is a you know we, we've had some really we've had several NBA players here that that he sort of was the the residual action would be with Muhammad. And now we have a, a, a situation where he is really uh, a guy that understands our offense, performs in big games, has really diversified his game. So he's, he was just a driver coming in here. Now he's a shooter, and he can pull up as a, a really nice mid-range game. So I, I just sat there, and as we were trying to figure out better ways to score, I realized, you know, we're not using the guy that probably understands our stuff the best, and we've never really uh, dialed him up enough. So he's getting a lot of calls right now. And it's made a big difference, I think, in both our offense, but also in his just his confidence because he knows the coach is is dialing him up quite often. Michigan head coach Sean Beeline joining us. I mean, so there's the difference that he'll make on the floor with additional opportunities. But when he has a game like that in his final home game, what kind of a message or an example does that set for the younger players in that he was willing to be patient and wait his turn, and then yeah. when that time came, he was able to deliver? It's it's a great part of college basketball. We have a lot of great things. But when a guy sort of just for four years just focuses on just getting better every day, these are the by, this is the byproduct of it, that over time uh, they just uh, – uh, we call it they become unconsciously competent. They don't have to think anymore. They just do the next right thing without even having to think about it. And they're also instructing others. And so he is really, uh, that's what he's doing. He, and he's not a holler guy, Jim, but he's a guy that's in people's ear telling them, okay, this is not, and correcting the young guys and pushing them around where they should be. You know, one of his biggest things is, is that, you know, he came in here not, as a straight-out drive-to-the-hoop uh, scorer. He's, he's right now got 93 assists and 15 turnovers on the year. I mean, I've never seen a stat line like that. He takes care of the ball. Um, and not out there, uh, you know, as he's not John Stockton with the ball as far as assisting, but he makes the next right play, and that's what's made us good. Clones, I need a moment so I can talk to you about stamps.com. It goes without saying that the U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business reaching every household every single day. Now, stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. With the exact amount of postage every single time, so you never underpay or overpay. And Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I love Stamps.com, and the reason I use Stamps.com is because it is convenient, it is easy, it is reliable, it is so efficient, it saves me so much time. I love this product. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Jungle. To get this deal, go to Stamps.com and enter the code name Jungle. I love this product. I know you will, too. That's Stamps.com. Now it's back to our Daily Jungle. Talk to Michigan head coach John Beeline. 
John, Sunday's win was senior day, and before that game, Austin Hatch was honored. And yep. for those who do not remember, he came to Michigan after a plane crash that took the lives of his father and stepmother. He left him in a coma for months. He played as a freshman. He served as a student assistant. So what kind of emotions were you feeling when he came <laughs> onto the court with his fiance Abby, before yeah. that game? Tear, tears. I mean, I, somehow it stopped. I, didn't, I thought I'd be blubbering by the time he got there, but it is it just – do you go back his history? Because I think everybody probably knows now. You know, he he lost brother, sister, and a mother in the first plane crash, and a stepmom and a dad in the second plane crash. And he uh, just for to have him, he's going to graduate with a degree in organ, organizational studies. We thought three years ago it was better he concentrate on that because the injuries had just taken too much of a, ter- uh, a toll on his body that it wasn't safe for him or the team for him to be out there going through everything. And so he's helped us in other ways off the court. But most importantly, he's been a great influence on all of us as far as a, a sense of appreciation because, truth, he was one of the best sophomores, I thought, in the country. He was like a young Wally Serbiak, I say, at that time. He was, he was tremendous. And the next time I see him, he can't walk. And so to see him walk out there on the floor, Jim, and now get his degree in May, and he's getting married to Abby in June, uh, it's a wonderful thing for, for me to be a part of. And um, I think he feels special about it all, too. Michigan head basketball coach John Beeline, my guest. Now, John, senior day is so emotional, I would imagine, for every single senior. But what's it like for you as the head coach and as somebody who has known these players for years and knowing that you're going to coach them for their final home game ever? Yeah, I think it gets more emotional every year because I, I, I know that – uh, as time goes on, you'll see them all. They'll come back in the first couple of years, and then they'll they'll come back or five. They're, go, they're going all over the world. Uh, they're playing professionally all over the place. My schedule is crazy. You might not see them, and I think I realize right now that these days uh, with it with these, this relationship you have with them will always remain, but it's just never going to be as close because because things change. It's almost like your own family. And so as a result, uh, it is really emotional for me. Uh, but as long as we all did everything we could during those four or five years they're with us, that's all we can do. And I think they help us, and, and hopefully we prepare them for what's next. Michigan head coach John Beeline, my guest. John, there's some breaking news. I'm not sure if you're aware, but it was just announced that Louisville is going to vacate its 2013 NCAA title. You, of course, played in that game against Louisville. <laughs> Did you know this, and what is your reaction when you hear that they have to vacate that title? I, uh, you're, you're blindsided me on this one. You know, I, uh, people have, I think, have asked that before to me to be able to, to say, you know, does that make you the champion? And I'll let others decide that. All I know is we got every inch out of everything we got could from that team that year. Uh, lost a tough one to Louisville. And, uh, you know, they had, they had a tremendous team as well. Uh, but uh, we, we certainly uh, really represented our university and college basketball the right way that year. And uh, I, I'm very pleased we were able to go as far as we did and wish we could have won that last game. You know, John, it's, it's such a classy response. I mean, deep down, do you consider yourself the champs now that you know that? I'll let you. I'll let you say that. <laughs> I'm not going to say. I don't know enough about it right now, but I, I do. I, I, all I know is that um, you know we were one of the, the one of the four best teams in the country. Then got down to the two best teams in the country, and uh, I'll let everybody else answer that question. But thanks. Fair enough, John Beeline, my guest. One last thought: You've won five of your last six. So from the outside, John, it would seem like you're peaking at the right time. Does it feel that way to you? We're really playing well. Uh, I think that sometimes, though, it's your schedule. 
Um, we might not have been playing well if we – our next two games at – we're at Penn State tomorrow, and then we're at Maryland, two teams that are really – they're both bubble teams. They're both right there. They're fighting for everything too. And so uh, we're going to have to play really well. But we are playing well at the right time. If, you have a, if we have a chance to t- win these two on the road, that would be the time. But we're going we're gonna to have a dog fight. There'll be, there'll be uh, a lot of people waiting for us in Penn, at Penn State, uh, Maryland as well, and we're going to have to play at our best without question. It's a, it's a great time of the year, though, Jim. You know, with all these teams, everyone's fighting. I've never, never seen the parity that you're seeing right now, the, the top ten teams losing traditionally every week. Four or five will lose, whether they're home or away. So it's a great year for college basketball. Let's make it official. All right, so 2018. It's hard for me to imagine that it's only February 20th when you consider what's happened already with the program. 2018 really is the year of the jungle. The jungle new year. New studio. New simulcast. An original content podcast that is crushing it on downloads. And I'll tell you about today's a little bit later on. Lit phone lines every single day since January 2nd. Better clone interaction every single day. Videos populating our Twitter feed and Facebook page. So we absolutely have stepped up our social game. In-studio guests. Great sponsor relations. An amazing week in Minnesota. Another Sunday Super Bowl radio program. An affiliate network that continues to grow. I mean, literally, what more could I ask for seven weeks into the new year, more than 25 years after I started doing this? What more could I possibly ask for? Is there anything else? What's there? I had another great year on the NFL and CBS. I mean, I'm having the time of my life. I've never had more fun with the show, with the brand, doing the job, getting up and going to work every single day. What more could I possibly ask for seven weeks into the new year? How about this? How about this? How long did we wait for the simulcast? 10 years? 15 years? How long have we been waiting for this announcement? How about the show? This show finally making its long-awaited debut. And I mean finally. On satellite radio. POD. POD if you need them. And I'm not really sure anybody does. No offense, bros. Anyway, let's play some basketball. It's starting tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, starting tomorrow, The Jungle and every other show on CBS Sports Radio is going to launch on Sirius Channel 213, also XM Channel 201. Once again, this show and the entire network hitting satellite radio finally, Sirius 213, XM Channel 201, The Jungle absolutely loves our terrestrial radio affiliates. I'm going to stop right there. Big shout out and a big thank you to all of our jungle affiliates, all of our terrestrial radio affiliates who put themselves out there. They carry this show, they promote the show, that support the show. Nothing but love for our existing radio stations, some that have been with us for a couple of decades, but love to every one of these stations. But adding Sirius XM into the fold is perfect for any of you who might be traveling 
or maybe living in a market that doesn't have the show, or maybe you lived in a market that once had the show and now you can't find it, but you do have satellite radio. So make sure to push this news out to anybody you know that is dialed in with Sirius XM but does not have the show locally. That's what it's for. It's for people that do not have the show locally on a terrestrial radio station. It's if you're having a long road trip or you're on vacation. So let me run this down very quickly. We are live every day on 200-plus different radio stations in the U.S. and in Canada. We are live every day on any TV that has CBS Sports Network. We are on demand every day through the free, free Daily Jungle podcast on iTunes. And now we're about to be live every single day in every car that has satellite radio starting tomorrow. tomorrow. And even if it's not in your car, you can still get it. The jungle finally is absolutely everywhere. There is no reason not to have this show or find this show. It's everywhere. So it's no no longer a case of it's not on the radio station that I listen to. It was once on the radio station that I listened to. Doesn't matter. You can find it anywhere now. You can find it everywhere now. And I've never been more hyped. Three decades in, you're supposed to be winding it down, going quietly, looking for that off-ramp. Not me, not you, not us. Three decades in, and this thing is still growing. The jungle is getting bigger, it's getting better, and that's amazing. That's incredible. So many, many thanks to everybody involved who's been ride or die with me. All you clones, the crew in New York, making the simulcast possible, the suits on 55th Street, getting deals like this done. My new satellite friends, my crew here in SoCal, especially the King, KTK, Craig Kitchen, who makes everything happen. And most of all, once again, you clones, you clones, none of this happens without you. The people listening right now are still part of sports radio's best and most loyal, rabid audience. And it's not even close. So let's get it. It's only February 20th. I cannot wait to see what the rest of 2018 brings, but that's a major announcement, and we've been trying to make that happen for a long, long time. I have wanted that for a long, long, long time. Hey, remember way back in the day, you old school clones will remember way, way, way back in the day when satellite first hit, there was a legitimate discussion, and if the record were to reflect truly, I'm telling you, I came this close. I came this close to leaving terrestrial radio back in the day and going exclusively satellite. It almost happened. Went back there, had a meeting with an icon of the industry on a Saturday. The guy sat me down, looked me in the eye, and he said, Hey, Rome, just so you know, I've taken two Saturday meetings my entire life. Life. Clandestine flight to New York. And almost made that change then. But it all worked out. Because now we have all the above. We have all of our stations and we have satellite and the entire CBS Sports Radio Network has satellite clearance starting tomorrow. No reason not to get the show. And I wonder if the reaction is going to be similar to what we have when we flip the switch and when simulcast on CBS Sports Network. You know, when straight sports fan guys started to call. We'll see. All I know is you can get it in your car. You can get it anywhere. I'm hyped. feel great about it. 1-800-636-8686. That is your major announcement. The Jungle and the entire network going satellite starting tomorrow. And I will remind you of those channels. And again, big shout out and a big thanks to the terrestrial stations that have carried this show for a long time and are still carrying this show.
Austin Dillon is my guest. Austin, so good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm actually sitting in front of a car. I'm sitting in a car um, in front of the stock exchange right now. Uh, it's a pretty crazy day. Dude, you're having yourself a day. You're having yourself a week. You've had a few hours to get used to it. So how does it feel to be introduced as the winner of the Daytona 500? Uh, there's nothing like it, man. And as a race driver, you dream about moments like this. And uh, every time someone says it, I'm still trying to, like, register what has happened. Uh, but crazy, crazy, crazy day. And uh, I'm just thankful for the opportunity that everyone uh, at the race shop and Dow, our partners, gave us. And we went and got it done. That's what's cool. You got it done, and then there's the way you got it done. I mean, there were so many different parts of that race on Sunday that must have made it so much more special. Can you take me back to the final lap? What's going through your head when the white flag drops and you're trailing Eric Almarola? Yeah, man, uh, the green-white checkered situation, so I'm sitting in fourth, and I know I have a somewhat of a teammate behind me in the 43 because uh, our shops are on the same campus, and he runs the same engines as us, um, Chevrolet teammate, and uh, Bubba Wallace in his first Daytona 500, and I, and I had pretty good confidence that he was going to stick with us, and, and he did, man. Um, we go through turn one and two, we get through all the gears good, and side drafting the 11, just trying to keep him right where I needed him, you know, right beside me. And uh, when I got the runoff of turn two, when Bubba gave me that shove, we had so much momentum. Uh, I cleared the 11, and the 10s tried to go low and block, and caught him, and uh, the rest, I guess, is history. We uh, won the Daytona 500. Austin Dillon. Yep. I was going to say, Austin Dillon joining us. You win the Daytona 500. You know, you also said that the other option would have been that you could have lifted and then just given that race to the 10 car. But when we're talking about the Daytona 500 and the chance to make history, is that really even an option? I don't know any other driver that would uh, give up that opportunity. Um, if they say they would, I don't, I don't know if I'd believe them. And um, you know, and truthfully, you take that chance when you block that it's going to happen. And I know if I would block and I'm in that situation, there's a good shot it's going to happen. It happened a lot during the day. It's uh, it's a part of what we do when we're speedway racing, man. You, you try and hold on to the lead, and sometimes it's better to be in second place. Now, you were in victory lane 20 years ago when Dale Earnhardt won the Daytona 500. Legend has it you were climbing all over the trophy. What do you remember about that race that day and the entire experience? Well, I was uh, hanging out at um, MRO, which is where all the kids kind of hung out during the race. And uh, my mother and grandmother came and yanked my brother and I up. And we got to go to Victory Lane and celebrate and do the hat dance because you go through all kinds of hats. And I uh, got to keep a bunch of hats from that race. And But more than anything is knowing that what a Dale Earnhardt Sr. had accomplished. You know, that was his, his last thing on the list to check off. And he was able to do it in 98 and win that uh, coveted Daytona 500 trophy. And 20 years later, little did I know that I would be driving a three-car into victory lane. Uh, it's just it's mind-blowing. Austin, Dillon, my guest for a few more moments. You know, then on top of that, when Dale passed, it was so devastating to the entire sport and to your family, which was so close to him, especially your grandfather, Richard Childress, who, as you've said, nearly packed it in after Dale's passing. What did it mean to have him in victory lane with you on Sunday? Well, there's nothing like um, giving back to a guy that has, has given you really everything in, in the sport you love. And my grandfather just has poured everything out to um, to me as far as helping me along in my career. And to be able to deliver him a Daytona 500 trophy, he loves winning. I mean, who doesn't? But he loves it, uh, unreal passion for, for racing and winning. And to be able to give him that trophy, it felt so good. 
you know, Austin, then also knowing the history of the sport and what that number three car means to NASCAR fans, what's it mean to you to be the driver of that car? Well, um, there'll never be another Dale Earnhardt Sr. and what he was able to do for fans and his relatability was unmatched. And to be able to just carry on the tradition of the number three and add wins to that number, um, it's special. And I I hope all the the senior fans out there love seeing it go fast and and take home trophies. Listen, I think that you did what a lot of us would do if we were in your position, and that's get some ink to commemorate the win. What does the tattoo look like? And if you don't mind me asking, where is it located? Man, I'm sitting on the tattoo right now. Um, <laughs> so that, that tells you where it's located. Right. And it actually is the, the 60th annual Daytona 500 emblem. Um, and then I got champion underneath it. So pretty epic, epic night, I'd say, after that. Good man. So you got to run right back. You're going to race again on Sunday in Atlanta. So when you have a win like that, the one you just had at Daytona, how do you go about getting your mind right for racing? And again, you're doing a lot of things. You're about to ring the bell uh, at the stock exchange. How do you get your your mind right that quickly to get ready to run again? Man, Atlanta is a fun place, and I'm I'm really excited about this year with the new Camaro Z01, and um, I'll be ready. I'll, I'll be jumping in there, and uh, I, I'm focused this year. It's it's a big year for all of us at RCR, and I want to keep this uh, momentum rolling. Hey, I got a quick shout-out for you, though, too. Uh, my buddy Drew Storns listening on here. Uh, he said he, he loves your show, and he's been on it with you. He said, uh, make sure I say I hope this brings me good jungle karma. He's right, man. Austin, he's right. Drew Storns, my guy. I love Drew Storns. He, he knows the show as well as any athlete, and he was right to tell you that you should ask for some jungle karma. But just by coming in and doing the interview right after a win like that, you're automatically going to get the karma. Something good is going to happen to you. Listen, really quickly before you go, away from the track, you're a guy that can ball, ball out. You're a basketball player that's got a lot of respect. You compete in the hoop group. It's a basketball league started by Denny Hamlin. In addition to a three-on-three tournament that you and your brother host for charity, how would you describe your game as a player, and who's the NBA player you're most like? Well, I'm a, I'm a point guard. I have to get it done um with passing and a little bit of outside shooting. I do like to drive, though. Um, I'm going to take, uh, in hoop group, I would con- I would have to say Kyrie Irvin. I like to finish at the basket. Um, I can hit clutch shots from deep sometimes if my sh- shot is on, but uh, I like to dribble and-, and get inside. Let's talk about Tom Brady for a minute. Let's talk about the Pats. So a family version, a family version of the Pats Super Bowl 51 championship ring sold at auction. Let me start stop right there. Why would the Bradys be selling a family Super Bowl ring? Does that seem like a family that needs cash? Are they doing it for charity? If so, I haven't heard that yet. But that ring went for just shy of 350 gur. All right, so that answers part of the question. Why? Because it sold for 350 gur. That's why it's an all-time record for a Super Bowl ring. But then again, if you're that family, and especially that family, can you even put a price on a Super Bowl ring for the GOAT? I don't know. Except that price was the second most expensive piece of sports memorabilia sold in the last quarter century. And while the auction host would not say who bought that ring or who sold that ring, there is a pretty good hint where it came from. The name Brady was etched on it. So let me just say for fact, I don't know that the Brady family sold that ring. I don't know that. Maybe somebody close to the family was able to get one of the family rings and flipped it. Or maybe somebody in the family sold the family ring. I don't really know. If that's the case, 
if you're wondering how things are going in the couples therapy session between the head coach and the owner and the star quarterback, there's a quick update for you. The hood is living it up on a beach wearing aqua socks on Valentine's Day with his girlfriend. Bob Kraft, I saw this weekend, kicking it courtside at the NBA All-Star Game with his lady. And TB12's family, allegedly, is hawking one of its Super Bowl rings at an auction house. Again, I have no idea. I don't know if they sold the ring, and if they did sell the ring, why they sold the ring. Maybe if you've got five rings, you don't need the family-sized replica, especially if you can flip it for that kind of dough. Hey, maybe that price was just too good. A sales price roughly 12 times the appraised value. I mean, if I were to take my most prized possession, whatever that might be, and that's one of those questions that comes up, you know, what are your five things? My most prized possession, I don't even know what that is, honestly. Honestly. I mean, my iPhone 10, maybe? I don't even know. If you were to come to me and say, we'll give you 12 times what that thing appraised for, would you do it? Okay, I'll give you an example. My most prized possession may, in fact, be my evil Knievel walking stick. And I do have it. First of all, how do you put a value on that? I mean, I don't even know. But if somebody were appraised that, if there were an auction house that were appraised it, you might ask, how is it that you have an evil Knievel walking stick? Did you go out and buy that? Did you get that on eBay? Did you go to an auction house? No. This is why this is so valuable to me. There was a point in time on this show where Evil Knievel was coming on and was one of the best guests ever. And I asked him one day, I got so comfortable with Evil Knievel, and I've never asked anybody for anything except for this. I said, Evil, respectfully, you and I are pretty tight now. Is there any way at all I can have that diamond-encrusted walking stick that you fill with wild turkey? My man had a diamond-encrusted walking stick that was clear that he filled with wild turkey and could take shots from. And I literally asked him for it. And he said, no. No, Jim, I'm sorry you can't have that, but you can have this. And he gave me another one of his walking sticks. That might be my most prized possession. So if somebody were to come to me and say, we appraise that stick, and that stick is worth X, but you can get 12x. Would you do it? Probably not. Probably not because I don't need the money. Just as I would allege that the Bradys don't need the money. That's a Super Bowl ring. Even if it's a replica ring. I don't know. Listen, I don't feel badly speculating because these people never say jack about jack. So we're left with no choice but to speculate, right? Maybe, I don't know. I know Tom's mom was sick. And that was very concerning and very sad. Would it be to pay medical bills? If that were the case, then I would understand that 100%. But I think Tom and Giselle are not hurting for money. Tom is rich and Giselle is richer. So it's probably not that. I don't know, maybe mom and pop Brady wanted to do some work on their crib in San Mateo and didn't want to have their son and daughter-in-law pick up the check. Maybe, maybe, or maybe it's not about the money. Maybe somebody's still pissed off about how things shook out last season. 
If you watched Brady's doc series drop on Facebook, we might have actually seen the moment that Brady's mom, and it was a really dramatic moment, really emotional moment, when his mom, Galen, was hand-delivered the Super Bowl ring when her son got craft on FaceTime with mom to spring the surprise. We want to give you a little present, and the only people that have the present that we're going to give you comes from the only players and coaches get this. But we wanted you to have it for the inspiration. So I hope you'll accept this little token of our appreciation. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Goodness. I love my gift. That is, oh my gosh. It's a trophy. It's not even a gift. Thank you. I hope that's not the one they sold. I mean, they, they couldn't have sold that one. What an awesome moment that was. There's no way they sold that one, right? I don't know how many of those replica rings get made. I don't know how many family members of players get rings like that. I just don't know. So I don't want to speculate. And it pulled a big number. But I just wonder. And I don't want to read into that. But I can't help but wonder since they'll never tell us because that's the Patriot way. Now all that happened before the season. Keep that in mind. That happened when things were amazing. That happened before... Alex got ripped out of the team complex and told to take his massage table and his oils elsewhere. That happened before Tom may or may not have laid down that Jimmy G ultimatum. That happened before all hell broke loose inside the one franchise where coach, owner, and quarterback were on the same page, allegedly, and built a dynasty unlike any other. And while I'm sure there's probably a good reason why they decided why now was the time to put that monster on the auction block, I got to be straight. If I'm a Pats fan, I would do my very best not to read into that, but I would wonder about that. Is that a straight financial transaction or is there more to it than that? I know this. Healthy marriages typically do not end up at the pawn shop Unless somebody has fallen apart hard times financially or it got deeply personal. And I don't think the Bradys are hurting for dough. I don't know. And again, I don't know. I want to be very clear about this. I do not know that that's the ring in question. I just know that if it were the ring in question, personally delivered by the owner, it's not going on the auction block. But then again, it's not the owner and the player because the owner loves the player or the owner wouldn't have pushed to trade the future franchise quarterback, allegedly. What's going on here? Chouts, I I literally am just sharing this story and not even speculating, but just floating it out there to get your reaction. Why would that family sell that ring even if it's a replica? When you can't put a monetary value on something like that, or maybe you can, 12 times for what it's appraised, everybody has their price. Is that what that is? Everybody has their price, or is there something personal behind it? One of the few times where I'm not giving you my straight take, I'm asking you, what do you think? 
What do you make of that? What's that all about? A question for you clones. Don't make me regret asking you a question. Give me a good answer to a good question. My guest is Kelvin Sampson. Kelvin, it is great to have you back in the jungle. How are you? Jim, it's always good to connect with an old friend. How you been, my man? My man, Kelvin, you and I have not talked in a minute or two. I'm doing great. How are things with you? You know, it's been a, um, a fun ride. Um, uh, Jim, there's, um, you know, when we took this program over, it, it had some uh, flaws. But I think it was those flaws that drew me to this. I, I, I wanted a program that we could uh, build and, and, and just kind of brick by brick, see if we couldn't get it better. I, you, know, over, you know, I was with the Rockets, and then uh, when I came over here to the University of Houston, I thought, why, why, is this, why can't this program be better? You know, it's in a great city. We're uh, surrounded by really good players, good high school programs, outstanding AAU programs. Um, but you know, our administration, you know, I, I asked them what their goals were. You know, were they committed? Um, you know, I had a, and I had a simple uh, philosophy that you know, coaches win games, but administrators win championships. And and their commitment to our program is, I think, why we're able to get where we are right now. You know, we've. Uh, we moved into a uh, $25 million Guy V. Lewis uh, Development Center with uh, every bell and whistle known to mankind for recruiting and player development. Uh, we're playing all our home games this year, Jim, over at Texas Southern, a couple miles away, while they renovate our arena. Uh, they're doing a $60 million renovation. Tillman Fertitta, who bought the Rockets, uh, wrote us a check for $20 million uh, to get it started, so we're going to put his name on it. But... You know, with the facilities we have um, currently and what we're building, uh, a great recruiting base. Uh, I, ju- I just think that this this uh, uh, this job is can get better and better. Kelvin Sampson joining us. Kelvin always nice when a guy will stroke a twenty million dollar check just like that to help out. You know, something else about this though. Let me go back four years. February 2014, as you point out, you were an assistant with the Houston Rockets at that time. And the fact is, you had a really nice career going as an NBA assistant. You spoke with your father, Ned. What was that conversation like, and what did he tell you at that time? Yeah, my, my father passed away on February 18th, and I was actually the associate head coach for the Rockets. And actually, I was the head coach for the Rockets during I think about 10 or 13 games during that stretch because uh, Kevin McHale, who's one of the greatest people I've ever been around in my life, whose uh, mother, his mother passed away. So he had an extended period where he was gone. So I was the head coach at the time. Um, so I called my father twice a day, every day. He, he was an invalid. Uh, he was bedridden for almost seven years. So I tried to check in on him twice a day just to see how he's doing and talk with him and uh, keep him up to date on basketball. He's an old basketball coach. Um, but I told him that, you know, um, I was getting a lot of uh, second and third person calls about going back to college. And I asked, I asked him what he thought, you know, just to see what his feelings were. And, uh, you know, my father was a depression baby. You know, when you're born from 1925 to around 1932, to parents during that time, you know, you, you probably weren't a person that showed a lot of emotion. You know, I love yous and, and positive reinforcement, encouragement. That's probably not part of your personality. My dad was like that. Um, 
But he, he said some things in that conversation, Jim, that I had never heard him say before uh, about me. And it really staggered me. It, it just put me on my heels and to the point where I almost got emotional just listening to him. And then, you know, four days later, he passed away. And I, and I said, um, I told my wife about the conversation. And, and I wasn't real serious about going back to college at the time because I was interviewing for some head jobs. I didn't know if I would get one, but... You know, I was getting some uh, interviews, and ho- hopefully I would have landed one, lucky enough to land one. But uh, after that conversation, I, I started really thinking about some things, and I had to, you know, let some things go uh, internally. So that, that really that really kind of got me going down this path. And then, uh, you know, I decided I wanted to meet with the University of Houston after that conversation. And I uh, think one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, I got my my son working for me. I got my daughter working for me. Shoot, Jim, this is the best job I ever had. (laughs) Kelvin Sampson joining us. That's amazing, right? What's it like having your son work for you? Unbelievable, unbelievable. You know, it's uh, you know, he's he's a he's a much much better, much much smarter than me at that age. I can tell you that. But he's uh, it's great. Um, you know, he's just uh, on top of everything, a little bit ahead of everything around here. I really lean on him a lot. He's he's going to be good. He'll he'll be. Uh, I've got to really enjoy it because he's going to be a head coach here pretty soon. Houston head coach Kelvin Sampson joining me once again in the jungle. You know, you made the point that being ranked was not one of the goals at the start of the season, but here we are for the first time since the eighty three eighty four season that the program is ranked in both polls. I know you're not going to rest on your laurels. Obviously, you're going to keep grinding. You're not going to celebrate this. But how significant a milestone is this for the program? It is a it is a significant milestone, especially where we started. You know, my my press conference, uh, Jim, was April third, two thousand fourteen, and that's when you know I didn't realize the impact recruiting, uh, excuse me, uh, transfers had um, in college basketball, especially when the season was over. You know, I talked to some friends, and he said, Kelvin, when the season right before the season ends, when the season's over." we spend more time recruiting kids in our program than we do recruiting kids to come into our program because everybody's getting advice, uh, people in their ears, transfer, transfer, transfer. Well, long story short, when all the smoke cleared on April, tw- around April 20th, um, I looked around and we have five players on the team. <laughs> you know, I told the AD, I think I'm going to call Daryl Morey and mostly on back over to the Toyota center. I didn't know it would be like this. <laughs> right. Uh, but, um, you know, when I think about where it was during that period and having to go out and recruit seven or eight guys just to have a team the following year, and then uh, uh, two seasons later, you know, that season, then the, you know, the following season we went 22, go to the NIT. Last year we went 21, go to the NIT. And this year, you know, we've got a chance to do some things. A chance, no guarantees, but at least a chance. Um, you always go back to where you started. I, I, I just always believed that you, you don't forget where you came from. You know, a lot of people look at where we are now, but I, I know the feeling in the pit of my stomach <clears throat> how sick I was when I found out that we've got to go find some players in May to fill out a roster next year. So from coming from that to uh, looking at the polls and see your name, it, it, it makes you feel good. It gives your players some a sense of credibility, uh, makes them believe that, um, you know, the culture that we've built, <clears throat> hard work that they go through in season, off season, um, 
you know, maybe these people right here know what they're talking about, and it motivates them to work even harder. Houston's men, or Houston men's basketball coach Kelvin Sampson, my guest. Yo, Kelvin, I would imagine, and you and I are pretty close in age, you, you know who stands by you when you're in the midst of some kind of battle. Like, for instance, your time in the NBA started after you stepped down at Indiana. The very next day, you received a phone call from Greg Popovich. What was the call like, and what was it like to work with him? Um. That was, uh, it was actually within 16 hours. Mm. Um, you know, Pop and I <clears throat> had a real strong friendship going back to our days as assistant coaches together for George Carl for a USA World Championship team. I think we spent 40, 40 days together in San Francisco and Portland and Indianapolis that summer. And, um, and I, you know, we started off just taking long walks together. Uh, around Chinatown and San Francisco. You know, we, we'd venture out four or five miles. We just explored the city in our time off, you know, just, just to walk and talk and share philosophies and, and just get to know each other. His room was next door to mine. We had a door that opened. We could go back and forth. And, you know, we just got to be good friends. And, and then after that, um, uh, I would take my staff down to San Antonio for – staff meetings during San Antonio Spurs training camps. Pop would just open his video um, meeting rooms to us, and we'd go down there and plan our practices. And and in between their tour days, he would bring his staff in, and the two staffs, we'd just exchange ideas and talk and, and try to see if we can't become better coaches for our players. But, um, um, you know, when I first got the phone call, I just, I, I just figured it was a friend calling, you know, just a friend. Um, and, and you're right, Jim. When you go through something, um, you know, traumatic, you'll 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 find out who your friends are. Um, but you know, within 30 seconds of me picking up the phone, he said, "Hey, I just got off the phone with uh, RC. He was in Milwaukee. They were playing the Bucks." And he said, "I just got off the phone with RC, and we want to hire you um, to come to San Antonio. Can you be here Monday?" <laughs> mm. You know, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, but you know, it's, you know, one thing led to another and, um, I think four or five days later I, I got down there and I just, you know, he's just throwing me a lifeline, you know, just being good to a guy that went through something tough and, and we'll try to help him here. But, you know, I got down there, man. He, he put me to work. He said, Hey, you know, you got three choices for a title. You want this, this, or this. <laughs> he said, you gotta, you gotta come up with your title. So my title became consultant and um, uh, practice, uh, staff meetings, team meetings, uh, travel on the plane in the hotels. You know, I'd never been around an NBA team. I didn't know what it was like. Sometimes you're, you know, that that falls into the category, Jim. You don't know what you don't know. But uh, you know, I just um, I just got immersed with it and I fell in love with the basketball part. Um, but, you know, the NBA, everything's a routine, whether it's travel, packing your clothes, preparing for the trip, on the trip, coming back from a trip, getting ready for the game, film, shoot around. Everything's a routine. It's almost like you're a big old brown bear in the winter. You're hibernating, and you don't come out until the season's over. Right. Um, but Pop was, Pop's a special guy, man. He is a special, special guy. Let's go to Calgary. Bob in Calgary. Bob, good morning. Nice to have you. What's up? Romy, I know the announcement. Oh, I know do? it. Oh, really? Okay, go ahead. Sarah Jessica Parker 
is favored to win the Kentucky Derby. That's not the announcement. No. You don't like that car. I don't like that See, Bob, the thing about the Kentucky Derby is it's for horses. There isn't a human being anywhere, not Carl Lewis, not Usain Bolt. Actually, Bolt doesn't make sense because he sprints. The Derby's a mile and a quarter. You see, they, they don't put human beings in the gate, Bob. They put horses in the gate. And not just horses, Bob, but only three-year-old horses. That's what makes the Derby so unbelievable. You can only run in it once. And you have to be a horse, dummy. It doesn't make any sense. However, let's go to the phones. Albuquerque, one of our original four affiliates. Rex in the ABQ. Rexy, what's up? Not much, Rome. Congratulations on the uh, new uh, station up in the space. Um, but the question I have is, I don't think this deal with Tom Brady's mom is that complicated. I think she was just driving by Nordstrom wearing that ring and said, hey, I need a couple new blouses, maybe a couple pants suits. So I think she uh, hawked the ring, and then that's how she paid for it. But, you know, speaking of things that are expensive, you were mentioning about the coffee shops and doing your manuscripts there. What's IRA going to do? Because as far as I can tell, he can't afford one of those $5 mocha frappe lapes. So is he just going to say on his heavy soil futon and work on his autobiography at home? Let me guess, IRA, it's going to be a self-published ebook, right? If you did find a publisher, they'd immediately slap a 50% sticker on that trash and wing it across the room at the clearance table at Barnes and Borders. I get red-ass just thinking some poor innocent tree might have to give its life so that your garbage can hit the printing press. I'm sure the content's riveting, sharing your decades of smoking hash and relating fascinating tales like when in 1999 you almost hit that superfecta at the dog track in Los Alamitos. Look, I know you're jungle royalty, so I guess I'll stop there and just steer this plane right into the rocks, John Denver style. Rocky Mountain High. Ah! That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Yeah, so for half that call, I thought to myself, Rex, Rex isn't funny. Rex's delivery is very funny. But Rex's content's not funny. And then all of a sudden, Rex had some pretty funny content, and I thought that he might somehow pull this off. And then Rex had a terrible idea. Rex thought that he would work John Denver into the take. There you go. Podcast Tuesday. Ep 25 with David Goggins actually dropped yesterday. It was so good, I did not want to hold on to it. Make sure you listen to it. It's unlike any episode we have ever had. And check back tomorrow for another important day in the jungle. See you then. I'm out.